I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello, hello, everybody. How are we doing at the start of a new week? We've had a hot couple of days over here, so I am podcasting practically naked this week in order to stay alive, and I have the fan on very low at the other side of the room. So hopefully the microphone won't pick any of that up. But my God, I need a bit of a breeze on my back or else I might pass out during this episode and nobody wants that. I actually remember when Keegan and I were recording in the closet our first couple of years, there were times where we would have to pause and go like stick our heads in the freezer or splash our faces with water to kind of cool down. And I would look like I had a full bead of makeup on my face because I would have such red cheeks that it looked like I had rouge on my face. And I was always very glowy at the end of recording when we were in the closet, especially during the summer Oh my gosh. And if they didn't turn the AC on during the day before we got there that evening, it was even worse. But that is just what you do when you're a podcaster. Sometimes you just have to suffer a little bit to make it through. So I shouldn't complain too much because I'm lucky that I have a nice enough microphone that it doesn't pick up a whole lot from the rest of the room, which is really, really nice. 
As usual, before we get into the meat of the episode, I just want to remind you all that if you wanted to get a little bit more content and give your support to the show, you can go to patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist to join the angry feminist book club. It is $5 a month and you will receive two episodes of whatever book we are covering for the month. And this month I am talking about the feminine mystique by Betty Friedan, which I think is actually really fitting for what I'm discussing today. So if some of this conversation is interesting to you, I'm sure a lot of those themes are going to be brought up again when I discuss the feminine mystique and so on and so forth. And that episode is going to be up this Wednesday, so in a couple of days. But if you wanted to give even more support to the show, you can join the $7 level, which is the Feminist Faves, where you get all of the book club content, but you also get these episodes ad-free. You get them a little bit early, and you get some random bonus shit thrown up at you every once in a while. And of course, I want to remind you all again to please give a listen to my new show that I co-produced with India called Still Learning. You can listen to it anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, share it with a friend, leave a review, follow the podcast Instagram at Still Learning the Podcast. I am hoping to be able to get the second episode up sometime this month. Honestly, it kind of stinks that we have to be sitting on our hands, but I promise it's for a good reason. And as I'm able to talk more and more about it, I obviously will. So sorry, I have to be a little bit uh, coded with my wording there. But the episodes are so fantastic. And I just can't wait for everybody to listen and learn from them. And yeah, it's been a it's been a great time. So go check out Still Learning. All right, let's get into today's episode. I'm going to be talking about white feminism, which really, is it feminism? I'm not so sure. But white feminism is a term frequently used to reproach a perceived failure to acknowledge and integrate the intersection of other identity attributes into a broader movement. In white feminism, the oppression of women is analyzed through a single-axis framework, erasing the identity and experiences of other minority women. The term is also used to refer to certain feminist theories which focus on primarily white, cisgender, heterosexual, able-bodied women, and the women who live outside of these labels are excluded or marginalized. Writer and academic Rachel Elizabeth Cargill describes white feminism as, quote, a type of behavior that results under the guise of feminism, only as long as it is comfortable, only as long as it is personally rewarding, only as long as it keeps on brand. I just love the choice of words there because I think it's so clear from that definition, especially in today's day and age of feminism. It's very, very clear to get an image in your mind of what white feminism looks like. We see it so much on social media these days. There are so many influencers out there and things like that that focus on a very narrow-minded perception of feminism and of women's rights. And it's not necessarily a vindictive thing because it's ignorance, truly. And it's also not taking the time to educate yourself. So I guess it is kind of their fault because if you're not taking the time to educate, that's, that's on you. But hopefully, you know, like with anybody, you should be able to take a criticism and learn from it, so on and so forth. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Talking about being on brand, I think, is 
a really, really great thing to bring up. And the first thing that came to mind when I'm trying to think of like a cultural example that's really relevant to right now, the first thing that comes to my mind is the Barbie movie. And I talked about that movie in great length on this show. There's two episodes covering Barbie. And I do mention a lot of the diversity issues and things like that, even though Mattel is like, we're so amazing and diverse now and all this kind of stuff. There has become this sort of like Barbie feminist movement that's been going on over the summer because of this movie. And suddenly everyone really, really knows what the patriarchy is and fuck it. And I don't know. It, it seems like, again, it's having an idea of feminism through the lens of this movie kind of. And I just don't think that that's a fully involved and explained idea of what feminism truly is. Should it be a gateway drug for some people? A hundred percent. I hope that there are so many people out there that saw the Barbie movie and they were like, oh my God, you know, light bulb moment. I need to examine more about myself and my views and things like that because of what I've seen in this movie about how capitalism, you know, has destroyed, you know, all of us and how Dolls and Barbie has contributed to that and their beauty standards and all of these things. I think it brings up a lot of really, really amazing points as well. So if that leads people to wanting a broader understanding of what intersectional feminism, true feminism is, then I'm glad, but that can't be it. I don't want to see three weeks of Instagram reels where, you know, you're wearing pink and doing your Barbie thing and you're talking about the certain talking points from the movie and then three weeks later, it's gone. You know, I feel like it is something that if you are going to start touting off your views about it, you do need to back it up. White feminism is an exclusionary feminism that does not consider the intersectionality of women, ignoring how misogyny intertwines with racism, Islamophobia, and ableism. It assumes that white women experience misogyny in the same way all women experience misogyny. And obviously, that's not true. For me, white feminism is the belief that my needs as a white person are the only needs of all womankind, and not taking the time to educate and explore other ways of living than my own. Now here, I'm not a perfect feminist by any means, but I've come a long way. When I was first interested in feminism, of course, the feminism I was most familiar with was the one that affected me the most as a cisgender white woman. I thought about the wage gap, the free the nipple movement, and the anti-slut shaming. I thought about the fact that we needed more women in power and more female voices heard in our culture. I believed that an incredibly important job as a feminist was to educate men in particular and teach them in order to achieve what I wanted. I worked for someone who was involved in this campaign that was called He for She, which I believe doesn't exist anymore, but it was started by Emma Watson. And at the time, which I think 2015 was this time, I really liked what it had to say. He for She sought to involve men and boys in achieving gender equality alongside women. But when I look back on it, this company was very, very narrow-minded as well. But as a white woman at the time who hadn't gone very far into her feminist journey, these were the types of issues that were on my mind. But as I moved further into this journey, and most definitely when I started this podcast, my mind was open to ways that my views of feminism could be harmful to many, and that I ought to start fighting for a hell of a lot more. Once I learned of the idea of white privilege, it always made sense to me. 
I had enough people in my life who are from different racial and ethnic backgrounds to be able to see how my privilege as a white woman made me different. I knew that I could probably talk my way out of a ticket. I know I could probably get away with some petty crimes without much punishment. I don't fear police officers or other authority figures and always assumed that they had my best interest at heart. On top of that, as children in the United States, we're also taught a certain version of history which skews our perception of white supremacy in this country. Colonialism was all about teaching what the white man deemed uncivilized people to become like themselves. White people have been dehumanizing people of color since the beginning of time. And I don't know what gave us the idea that we were superior to begin with. I don't think having pale skin is that great, to be honest. But that's the way our country was built. And that's the way it has remained for hundreds and hundreds of years, giving rights here and there to the black community, the LGBTQ community, but never fully accepting them as equals. Feminism, as I'll get into in this episode, is built on whiteness. Because of this, a lot of women in the world feel there isn't space for them in this movement. But they are the movement. Without these differences, these intersections being addressed, women will never truly achieve equality. Equality for some is not true equality. And along the way, I've learned that it's my responsibility as a white person to listen to those who live different experiences than my own and actually shut the fuck up for once. I've also learned that if I intend to use my voice, it should be to amplify the voices of all women and show an example of a white intersectional feminist in a positive light, which scares the crap out of me sometimes because I feel a lot of pressure to get it right 100% of the time. And I've had to learn that that's impossible. The best thing I can do is acknowledge when I've made a mistake, learn from it, and never repeat it again. Also, depending on the topic, I may go to good old Google and look more into why what I said or did was problematic. It's weird to be a solo, white, feminist, cisgender host on this intersectional feminist podcast, especially when I'm discussing things that I don't have any direct experience with. But in my opinion, it would be worse if I ignored these topics and only focused on what was affecting me on this show. Because then, wouldn't I be just as bad as all of the other white feminists? Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta. And I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop. And you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. While the term white feminism is relatively recent, as we know, its concepts date back to the earliest days of feminism, especially in the United States when so many abolitionists turned their back on the cause of black men and women to focus on the vote for white women. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the Grimke sister, Susan B. Anthony, all of them started out as abolitionists, as I believe you all know by now. I think I've hit the nail on the head a few too many times on this topic on the show. But anyway, they all started out being abolitionists. And once this feminist movement began, they started to betray more and more of the abolitionist group and wanted to fight more for their own rights. And I think really made themselves believe in a lot of ways that by giving themselves the vote, it would in some way help black people as well. I think that that was a lie they were telling themselves to make themselves feel better about this huge shift. But that is truly what a lot of this movement is based upon. And that's why there has to be a lot of change. We have to be very, very critical In her book, Against White Feminism, author Rafia Zakaria states that mainstream Western feminism is and always has been for white women and girls. She clarifies that a white feminist is, quote, someone who refuses to consider the role that whiteness and racial privilege attached to it have played and continue to play in universalizing white feminist concerns, agendas, and beliefs as being those of all feminism and all feminists. Her book also explores historical and contemporary examples from around the world and shows how imperialism, settler colonialism, neocolonialism, and late capitalism has allowed for a white-centric feminist movement. I actually really, really want to read or listen to her book. I started listening to an interview that she did on another podcast, and I really, really enjoyed what she had to say. And like I said, in the U.S., the feminist movement began with a lot of these white women who had gotten involved in the abolitionist movement. But I had actually read this week that in the U.K., there is no historical evidence to show any participation of black British women in the suffrage movement there. And from what I've learned, it really seems that from the beginning, it was not only just that black women felt like they didn't have a place in the movement, But it actually really felt like they were not invited and they were being pushed out. And it's just really terrible. New Zealand was actually the first country to give its women of all ethnicities suffrage, which was met with anger by white feminists like Millicent Fawcett, Susan B. Anthony, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Why are you angry? Like, maybe New Zealand is setting a precedent and the U.S. is going to come right along with them. And why wouldn't you want votes for everybody? Like, what? What's wrong with you? In the United States, white women would achieve the vote before even black men were given the right. Black men and women in America were still evicted from the voting polls in the Jim Crow South, though we know that even today there are forms of gatekeeping at the polls, keeping certain people from being able to cast their vote. 
But none of this is to say that Black women didn't play a very integral role in the birth of feminism. It's just that they were not as widely publicized and celebrated at the time. In the second wave, beginning in the 1960s, lasting through the 80s, feminism was still primarily middle-class, educated white women, such as Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem. I've been mentioning this book a lot as well, The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir was a striking example of centering the feminist movement around the white and bourgeois, thus showing a disregard for other forms of oppression such as race and sexuality. That was very, very clear, and if I remember correctly, there was actually a part of the book in the very beginning, first chapter, where she actually describes that the strife of the woman is worse than that of a black man, and I was like, mm, give me a break. The most prominent text of the second wave, which some say kicked off the second wave, was The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan, who spoke to white, college-educated, middle-class women who kept house and raised children and dealt with a lack of fulfillment. For more info, listen to this week's Patreon episode coming out this Wednesday. What it didn't explore was the circumstances of other women. The book did not impact black women, as many of them already had to work outside of the home by necessity. So they were probably like, you're crazy. We've always been doing this. What's your problem? Betty always stuck to writing about her personal experiences, but she was also quite hostile with people who pointed out her more moderate views among a movement that was becoming more and more progressive every day. Betty was seen as one of the primary leaders of the movement at the time. Many of this was probably self-imposed by Betty herself, as she was the co-founder of NOW, the National Organization for Women, and other women's groups. And many of the women around her worshipped her for being the author of The Feminine Mystique, like it was the feminist Bible or something. And they had to respect their Jesus who gave them the text. But since she was seen as the leader and she had such strict and limiting views of the feminist movement, she often clashed with other feminists as well who weren't afraid to stand up to her. A historian from Smith College who wrote a book about Betty and the making of the feminine mystique once said to a reporter, she was a professional writer, acutely aware of these books and the impact they had. So that seems like she was already probably pretty aware as she was writing it. She was like, oh, this is going to be this is going to be great. This is going to be the thing that starts it all. I don't know. Was Betty Friedan a supervillain? I'm not sure. But no, you know, we have some things to thank Betty for. I'm, I'm just hard on people. What can I say? It was during the second wave and into the third that more black voices were finally heard in the feminist space, such as Audre Lorde, Angela Davis, and so many more. But that doesn't mean that black women were fully accepted into the movement quite yet. But it almost seems like they were starting their own thing. Like if they weren't going to be invited into now or have any sort of a leadership role, it seems like there were more and more groups popping up that black women were starting. And that was becoming very, very powerful as well. In 1973, which I believe the whole year was known as like women's year or something, or maybe there was a women's month in there, but 1973, big year for women. Black feminists convened at the National Black Feminist Organization, giving themselves a separate space to share their opinion on the same things that the white feminists were talking about, such as women in the workspace, owning your sexuality, reproductive rights, domestic violence, and rape. It was a very segregated movement, which is so strange because at the same time, there were so many people that were working in the civil rights movement as well. It just doesn't seem like those two groups as a whole were meshing at all. 
And there were times that these two groups would attempt to join together, and it just didn't ever end fairly. When Shirley Chisholm, one of the founders of the National Women's Political Caucus, decided to run for president of the United States, she faced pressure from both the members of the black community and the women's movement. When she declared her candidacy in January of 1972, she said, I am not the candidate of black America, although I am black and proud. I am not the candidate of the women's movement in this country, although I am a woman and I am equally proud of that. Prominent black politicians like Ron Dellums initially supported Shirley, then pulled back at the last minute to endorse her opponent, and she received lukewarm support from leading feminists. Bella Abzug never formally endorsed her, and Shirley's friend Gloria Steinem even said that McGovern, her opponent, was the best of the male candidates, but left out Shirley's name. This was considered a semi-endorsement by Shirley, but it caused a real rift in their relationship. Years later, Gloria expressed regret over the issue, thankfully. A large recent example of when white feminism was rampant was during the Me Too movement. Though the creator of the hashtag was a black woman named Tarana Burke way back on MySpace in 2006, it was the voices of famous privileged white women who were the most prominent. And also, when I think of political leaders who embody many white feminist behaviors, of course, the first person I think of is Hillary Rodham Clinton. In 2015, in preparation for her run for president in 2016, a bunch of white celebrities joined around Clinton, insisting that the fight for women was far from over. But some younger feminists, including myself, veered more toward the candidate Bernie Sanders, reminding us all that wealthy white female figureheads who promise to shatter glass ceilings don't automatically get the feminist stamp of approval. And that's because Hillary failed to speak on the varying needs of all women, and rather stuck to safe topics geared more toward wealthy white women like herself. From a political article, Just as Americans are increasingly non-white, so too are feminists. Just as being gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender is increasingly normalized, so too are the LGBT folks more visible and vocal in feminist activism. For young women, feminism today must take into account all of these constituencies and elevate the voices of the most marginalized. For all the challenges she's faced because of her gender, Clinton is not entirely representative of a broad movement in which many women find their particular experiences shaped by their gender and their race and their class or some other combination. Thanks to pressure from younger feminists at the time, as well as the many other people giving her input, such as female economists, think tank and nonprofit leaders, lawyers, and young staffers on her campaign. With their help, she embraced more of the feminist agenda than many other nominees in history, but she still missed the mark. Even with all of that help, her campaign did not grasp the dynamics of feminism needed to reach the voters that she needed to win. Her campaign relied on celebrity endorsement gimmicks with girl boss feminism, which I think a lot of us see right through. When Googling the most notable celebs to publicly endorse Hillary, the list included some interesting people such as Louis C.K. and Matt Damon. Louis C.K. who likes to reveal himself to people and Matt Damon who just learned that saying the anti-gay F-word isn't okay because his daughter schooled him on it. Yeah, they seem like real feminist men. But one of the most prominent celebrities to stand by her side during the campaign was Lena Dunham. And my gosh, we got to talk about her. She's faced backlash for defending a writer and executive producer who worked on her show Girls that was accused of rape. 
And when a former writer for her quote-unquote feminist newsletter, Zizi Clemens, announced she was quitting, she alleged that Lena engaged in, quote, hipster racist behavior. Clemens stated, quote, I'd call her strain hipster racism, which typically uses sarcasm as a cover, and in the end, it looks like a lot of gaslighting. I think all of us have had this experience at some time or another with a mean girl in our lives, or a mean guy. Apparently, according to Clemens, at least one girl who ran in Lena's circle would casually use the N-word in conversation. To that, Lena responded, No one would be calling me a racist if they knew how badly I wanted to fuck Drake. Like, what are you thinking? That's the oldest I'm not a racist trope in the book. Like, I'm not racist. I'm dating a black man. I'm married to a black man. It's like, you'd think that all of us would know by now. And this was a few years ago. But even by then, you should know that that's that doesn't validate your usage of that word or your usage of anything in that culture. So shh, just don't tweet that shit. She was also heavily criticized for the lack of diversity on her show Girls. And this was a criticism that started really early on when the first season debuted. And so Lena made a promise to respond to these concerns in the future. She said in an interview with NPR that she wrote the show as a reflection of her own experience and wanted to avoid tokenism casting to avoid rendering an experience she can't speak to accurately. My question then would be, why do you have so little life experience with people outside of your own race? She told The Hollywood Reporter in 2015 that Girls was about, quote, weirdo girls and chubby girls and strange half-Jews, and that she had, quote, forgotten that there was an entire world of women who were being underserved. My God. <laughs> and, you know, she gives off this very, like, kind of meek image. She's not a glamour girl. She's not a model or anything like that. But she is a big old Nepo baby. She comes from hella money and has lived a very, 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 very privileged life. So I understand that she may not have those types of experiences. But I think that if, especially when you're making a show called Girls, you're in New York, like you have to be able to show a broader experience in order to get a broader audience as well. And when she would bring people of color onto the show, it's kind of ironic that she was like, I don't want to token cast somebody in the show. But that's kind of the way that all of the BIPOC characters were written. They were all there to just support Lena's character or the other main characters in the show. A BuzzFeed reporter once wrote that Lena's portrayal of ethnic minorities as supporting characters who are, quote, blindly invested in white strangers' lives. That's fact. Very much fact. But obviously there's more than just Lena out there. Other celebs that fall into this category of false feminism include Amy Schumer, Taylor Swift, Tina Fey, Miley Cyrus, Emma Watson, and so many more. Not all of them are at the same level as Lena, but all of them have touted feminist jargon throughout their careers and then turned around to do some pretty heinous shit. Most of the time, these women are ignorant and tone deaf, and they are too quick to get defensive. And it's that defensiveness which keeps us white people from being intersectional and from recognizing our privilege and realizing when is the right time to just, again, shut the fuck up. It's common for white people to feel uncomfortable and defensive when confronted with issues regarding racism. When only viewing the world from your white feminist perspective, 
Many white women may not even be aware that the feminism they've subscribed to is exclusionary. And that's really because white feminism is rooted in white supremacy. The primary goal of white feminism is an improvement on the lives and experiences of white cishet women alone. Koa Black, author of the book called White Feminism, says, quote, White feminism acts to homogenize feminism to assert mainstream dominant feminism as the feminism, which is not true. This is an act of white supremacy. This dynamic often means that where the needs of women of color, transgender women, disabled women, or Muslim women conflict with that of white supremacy, their needs will be dismissed or subjugated. In her book, Koa argued that this dynamic occurs both on a structural level and on an individual basis, saying, quote, The one black woman in the feminist meeting has her ideas dismissed because they are too niche, i.e. only for non-white women. It's a kind of feminism that's also closely tied to the white savior complex. This is a common trope historically held by white people who hold the mindset that people of color or any non-white group are submissive and helpless, and they need white people to come save them. Obviously, this has roots in colonialism. This is how the white settlers framed their violent invasions of people's lands. They called the native people barbaric and unintelligent and told how they needed to be taught to lead more civilized lives. Civilized like the West, that is. While white women do experience misogyny and oppression, they still benefit from the structures of white supremacy and wield more power than any other group of women. In their book Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall, she explains that white feminists embolden a quote, feminism that could ignore police brutality killing women of color, that could ignore the steady disenfranchisement and abuse in local and national politics of some women based on race and religion, wasn't about equality for all women. It was about benefiting white women at the expense of all others. In 2020, the American streets were overflowing with people protesting police brutality and the recent police killings of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd. In the midst of this, a new subgenre of social media emerged. White women at anti-racist protests, presumably to take clout-building photos for Instagram and Twitter. Gag me with a fucking spoon. Baking your care and involvement in a life-or-death civil rights struggle or disrupting people who are actually fighting for their lives is super fucking embarrassing and disgusting. But social media culture has made it so that putting up certain pictures with the right message behind it means you're immediately an activist. When you add celebrities to social media activism, you get a fucking dumpster fire. Who could forget how Kendall Jenner ended racism by offering police at protests a Pepsi? To me, most celebrity activism is done not out of true passion for a cause, but because they don't want to be remembered for being on the wrong side of history or because they want to be perceived in a certain way. Again, I worked for this woman that was part of He for She for a bit, and whenever I would hear her talk about it, it wasn't about the actual cause of this movement that she was a part of. I didn't hear her discussing her plans or discussing what the group was doing or anything like that. It was always touting that she was a better feminist than Emma Watson, which was really funny to listen to, but like critiquing other people, but never really taking any sort of inventory with themselves. And I, you know, I've told you all I keep my tabs on this person a bit in life, particularly because I still care for their kids a lot. 
And I looked at their Instagram during the protests of 2020, and it was just, oh, she was taking so many pictures at protests in like large groups with black women. And it just, I don't know, there was something about it that just seemed really strange. And she was posting a bunch of pictures with her black friends. And I don't know, it's like, dude, this isn't about you. Like if I were to go there I don't really know if I would even take a selfie. I I don't really know if my mind would be there. I'd be wanting to take photos for the memories, but not necessarily good memories, but to kind of make like a historical marker in my brain of what's happening. And I still to this day really wish that I had been a part of the protest during 2020. I was just so so panicked about the coronavirus that I I was very, very much stuck inside. So I, di- I really tried to do my best from home to support as much as I could, particularly through the show and things like that. But I think that if I was there, that I don't even know if taking a picture of myself would even be a thought. I think that when you go to those things or anytime you're at a memorial or when you're fighting literally for the lives of people, no matter what, it's important to put yourself aside a little bit and do what needs to be done for the greater good. I think because I am inherently pretty non-selfish and a people pleaser and try my best to take care of others constantly or else I feel worthless in this life. It's never really been my modus operandi in my brain of how I think necessarily that I should put myself in the forefront. And I remember that just being a really upsetting thing that was happening during the protest. But I also remember having a lot of discussions with Keegan about how important it is for white women and white people to get out there and and do their part and support, but also what that looks like. You know, how can you play a role in this without trying to take leadership or take control or make sure your voice is the one heard? How can you be the best support system that you can be, the best ally? And in my experience, the best way to combat white feminism is to practice being anti-racist. And now, obviously, I'm no expert on this, but I have learned that I can avoid becoming a white feminist bitch is to become anti-racist, acknowledge my privilege, and learn when it's appropriate to or to not speak up. Anti-racism is structured around conscious efforts and deliberate actions which are intended to provide equal opportunities for all people on both an individual and systemic level. Anti-racism work aims to combat microaggressions and help break systemic racism by focusing on actions against discrimination and oppression. Some of those tactics include revealing hidden biases or agendas behind acts of discrimination, interrupting and challenging oppressive language, educating offenders, and connecting with other allies and community members to act against discrimination. These are considered micro-interventions. Anti-racist micro-intervention strategies give the tools for people of color, white allies, and bystanders to combat against microaggressions and discrimination. 
The theory is that with enough microinterventions, the oppressor will see the impact of their words or actions and provide a space for an educational dialogue, which is so important. I, you know, I'm an angry person. <laughs> when I see something going on, my instinct is to like yell at a person and get really angry. But I know logically that that's not going to help me. So I take a couple seconds, I take a breath, and I do my best to meet the person where they're at and have a conversation with them without talking to them like they're stupid because that's not going to get us anywhere. No one wants to be spoken down to or told they're dumb or anything like that. These micro-interventions are not used to attack others about their biases, but are used to allow for that space for dialogue, to have a conversation, and get a person to a place where it's okay to admit they're wrong. Phrases like, I know you meant that as a joke, but that stereotype really hurts me, slash others. It's important to name the ways their behavior is harmful to a person of color or other minority group. However, it also must be noted that white racial justice activists have to be mindful in not causing activism burnout for activists of color. I've definitely learned along the way from my friends of color that, you know, don't ask too many questions. It's not their responsibility to explain everything to you. We live in a world now where all information is at our fingertips, literally, and we have access to so much where I think that it's great to have conversations to talk to your friends about their own experiences and their own boundaries in a very organic way. Like just by being friends, you will have these conversations. But I think that a lot of white people almost felt this responsibility in 2020 and on to like call their black friends and like have a chat or apologize or I don't even there was a lot and I'm lucky enough that I've been around enough people of color in my life to have had these these conversations to know not to behave that way but I understand the instinct of wanting to learn and wanting to be better and wanting to learn from a friend but it's also possible to really be putting way too much on that person. I truly believe in generational trauma. I think that it should not be on the onus of the person to explain their terrible history, especially when white people are the ones that caused it. So it's our responsibility to get that information, but still be open and a good friend and listen to your friends when they are talking to you about their experiences and Really listen and let that sink in and, you know, later do some more Googling and research for yourself if you want to know more. But activist burnout has been a big problem ever since like around 2012 when the Black Lives Matter movement and protests really, really started kicking off. There was a really small study done in 2019 of just 22 racial justice activists in this sample, and 82% of them identified behaviors and attitudes of white racial justice activists as a major source of the burnout they feel. 72% said their burnout was based by white activists involved having racist views. Ooh. 44% said it was due to white activists invalidating their perspectives as activists of color. 44.4% said it was due to white fragility. And half felt like white activists would take credit for their work. That, that's None of that is good. Don't do any of that. But after having done a little bit of research myself, here are some ways you can practice living an anti-racist lifestyle and combat white feminism. Number one is education. 
Educate yourself on the history of Black Americans and their experiences. Historical context helps to provide an understanding of the original dehumanization of Black people that is the foundation of which American racism was built. Review the laws and policies implemented to support white supremacy and the cultural rules and norms that created anti-Blackness. Learning the unconscious and automatic ways racism presents itself will help you recognize the steps to stop it. Intention. Anti-racism is a way of life, like starting a new habit. It requires a conscious decision to pursue it as a goal and way of being. Being intentional makes you mindful and aware of what we say and what we do. It's important to set the intention of having an open mind and an open heart. By becoming more intentional, we begin to break our inherent biases. Don't let white fragility get in the way. Being defensive, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the worst ways to open yourself up to learning and changing. To be an anti-racist white person, some of us have to sit with a lot of uncomfortable and vulnerable feelings, but that leads to compassion and empathy when responded to correctly. Do the work. To be anti-racist, one must actively work to create anti-racist policies and support policies that reduce racial inequality, such as reparations and holding police with records of excessive force accountable. Empathy. Cultivating empathy is key to rehumanizing the dehumanized. The best way to foster empathy is to share experiences, dissolving the boundary between yourself and others. Of course, that takes a lot of courage and vulnerability as well. But it's empathy that motivates us to improve someone else's well-being. Being empathetic also helps you bounce back from any shame you may feel because it moves us closer to connection. Allyship. To be an ally is to take on the struggle as if it was your own without making it about you. It's about doing what's uncomfortable. It's about committing yourself to taking risks and sharing any privilege you do have to center marginalized black and brown people. When you see something, say something. Remember, John Lewis once said, Ordinary people with extraordinary vision can redeem the soul of America by getting into what I call good trouble, necessary trouble. Again, I'm not the expert. I got all of this from resources online, which will be in the show notes for all of you to read and look at and educate yourselves further. I really, really want to listen to that woman Rafia's book. I think it's so important to never feel like we're done with our work, that we've learned enough, we've done enough, we're good enough allies, we're good enough feminists. And I don't mean that in a way that we should always be really hard on ourselves or be perfectionists in any way. But just remember that our work is never truly done, especially when life is constantly evolving and changing and we're always learning more and more. I hope that the feminist movement can continue to grow into more than just the white feminist world it's lived in since its conception. And I do see a lot of changes, but at the same time, I still do see a lot of the most prominent people being celebrated in the movement being white women and black women and women of color and women who are part of the LGBTQ plus community just don't seem to be quite as celebrated. It does feel really, really weird giving tips when <laughs> this is just stuff that I do myself. But like I said at the top of the episode, I feel like if I don't share these things that I've learned about trying to be a better ally, about trying to be a better friend and better human being. I do think it's important to be able to share these things on this show and not just center the show on topics that directly are relatable to me. 
And that's one of the wonderful things about this show is that I have learned so much from Keegan, from all of you through the so many hours of research. I mean, I think I'm at 544 episodes that I've done total. And it's like getting a feminist crash course every single week. And the fact that all of you tune in and listen every single week to go on this journey with me is such an amazing feeling to know that we are working toward building a feminist movement that is more open to all people. Because that's really the only way that any of us are going to achieve true equality is if we continue to fight for the rights of others. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. If you enjoy the show and you think others would too, go ahead and send them an episode that you think might interest them. You can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and probably some other places that you listen as well. But it really, really helps to rate and review, particularly on Apple Podcasts, because you can write a little sentence about why you enjoy the show. And that truly is very, very beneficial to me. Don't forget even more feminist content by joining the Patreon at patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist. The link for that is in the show notes as well. You can join the Angry Feminist Book Club for $5 a month or get a little bit of extra bonus content on top of the book club stuff for $7 a month and become a feminist fave. Don't forget to check out this week's Patreon episode where I will be covering The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan, the first half of the book. I'm very, very excited. I've been really interested and really, really enjoying this book. I've got a lot of work to do before Wednesday, so I'm going to get on it. I hope all of you had a wonderful weekend. I hope you have a peaceful, lovely week. I love you all very much. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.